0: Welcome to Profiles. I'm your host, Annie Corrigan. This week, Profiles is in two parts. In the first half hour, we meet microbiologist Rachel Dutton. At her lab at Harvard University, she looks at the microbes that grow on cheese. The second half hour is devoted to highlights of an archived interview from May of last year with farmer Marsha Veldman. She's also the coordinator of the Bloomington Community Farmers Market, and she was named Bloomington's Woman of the Year. For 2013. Welcome to WFIU's Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan. Our guest today is a scientist with a foodie streak. Rachel Dutton is a Bauer Fellow at Harvard University where she studies cheese and their microbes. The New York Times has called her the go-to source for chefs and food artisans seeking to unravel the mysteries of microorganisms. And we're just thrilled to welcome her into the studios today for Profiles. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. When I first think about cheese and their microbes, I go back to November 2013 when I read maybe the craziest article I've ever read where a UCLA microbiologist made cheese from the microbes on human skin. Specifically, this was from Michael Pollan, who is a food writer and just a famous food activist. Gross factor aside, is this just a a science
1: party trick or can we actually learn something from this? So I know the scientist who did that, Christina Agabakis, and uh, she is a synthetic biologist. And so it was part of an art and science project to sort of challenge the notion people have about microbes. We're learning a lot about the role that microbes play in the world and especially for humans. And so I think people's ideas about, uh, you know, microbes are all bad are changing and I think this is sort of a this was this project was an opportunity for her to kind of uh, really bring that idea of microbes that you might normally associate as something bad to actually you know something more relatable, uh, something that we carry around with us every day and that have interesting roles uh, in our everyday lives. And these were specifically, I think, from his belly button. Yeah. So she sampled uh, people's toes and belly buttons and uh, mouths. Um, And so something we're finding in our research is that uh, a lot of the microbes that are normally on cheese are actually closely related to the microbes um, from the human body. So those cheeses that smell like stinky feet, uh, (laughs) (laughs) the bacteria that give them those smells are actually related to the bacteria that grow in our skin and cause us to have stinky feet. So it's actually not that Uh, Much of a jump to think that we could actually just make cheese from skin microbes themselves.
0: Okay, let's go back to the gross factor. (laughs) Would you try cheese made from human microbes? Um... (laughs)
1: may not. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, you know, I think we don't actually know where a lot of the micros are coming from on on some of the cheeses we eat. So they're probably coming from the skin of the animals, uh, some of them at least. So it's, you know, it's not actually that different.
0: (sighs) It's a new way to think about food, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about your work with chefs. You've worked with David Chang and other chefs that are perhaps household names for some people. What questions are they asking you? What information do they want from a scientist?
1: Yeah, so I think chefs are getting more and more interested in uh, fermentation, in curing their own meats, in making their own cheese, pickling. And all of those things are, I think, interesting to chefs because of the flavors that you create during these processes. And they want to uh, be able to understand how these uh, fermentations work so that they can control them better in their environment or maybe come up with creative alternatives to the traditional foods. So all of these fermentations involve uh, communities of microorganisms. And so being a food microbiology lab, uh, we are perfectly uh, suited to, to trying to think about the, the science behind these foods and try and help them come up with new ideas
0: is this a new, develop- a new development, chefs coming to you asking for information?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, fermentation is one of the oldest technologies on the planet. So it's not that fermentation is new or that um, uh, using it in, in everyday sense is new. But I think people are starting to come back to it as a more common practice that they want to do in their kitchens, the chefs um, Partly because of the flavor. And then I think in general, people are getting more and more interested in how to do things themselves. So, this sort of DIY kind of movement in every area is also applying to fermentation. So, people, you know, not necessarily restaurant chefs, but people at home are making their own beer, making their own cheese, making kombucha. Uh, we actually have a kombucha vat going in our lab just for our own consumption. <laughs> nice. Nice. Um, so, I think just people are becoming more interested in. Uh, where their food comes from, and for fermented foods, a lot of that has to do with the actual microbes that are fermenting the food. So it's a it's a really interesting time in food, and it's an amazing time to be a food microbiologist.
0: Before we get too far away, what is kombucha for people who've never had it?
1: Yeah, so kombucha is a uh, ancient fermented tea. So you brew uh, black or green tea, and you add a little bit of sugar or honey, and it's this really crazy looking. Um, it's called a SCOBY, which is a symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. And it forms this mat that floats on the surface of your jar of tea. And the yeast in the, this SCOBY uh, ferment the sugar to ethanol and CO2, so gas, so it's fizzy, and then the bacteria that are part of this symbiosis convert that ethanol to acetic acid, which is vinegar, so you end up getting this fizzy, tart, tea-flavored drink, which I think for a lot of people is an acquired taste. When I first tried it, I didn't like it, but now I'm sort of addicted.
0: And it it is not the prettiest-looking drink no, it's not.
1: It has these sort of like uh, gooey kind of strands from the culture, yeah. and the 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 scoby itself is this incredibly interesting uh, microbial mass. We've done some microscopy of it in the lab, and it's it's really interesting. And it actually produces cellulose as part of its uh, structure. So it's just the whole world of food microbiology is completely fascinating.
0: Yeah. Well, we're going to get hopefully more into the nitty-gritty of your work in just a second. Before we do that, terroir, this concept of the taste of a certain place. Terroir is a a food buzzword. Talk about this idea of microbial terroir and what chefs are doing with that.
1: Yeah. So the, uh, the idea is that because the flavor from a lot of these fermented foods, now whether that is bread or wine or cheese or... You know your kimchi or whatever, um, because the flavor is coming from the microbes, if the microbes are only found in certain places, does that mean that if you make, uh, let's say, cheese in two different places, could you potentially get different flavors based on which microbes you happen to have around? Um, this is something that's been looked into to some extent with things uh, like sourdough cultures and um, a little bit more recently in wine. Uh, we're starting to look at some of these ideas in cheese, but um, it, it's not really clear to me just yet whether it's something that we have an answer for. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I I don't think I, I'm willing to say whether absolutely, yes, microbial terroir exists or not. Stay tuned. Stay tuned, yes. Okay. You
0: mentioned sourdough.
1: Uh, I had a bread
0: baker mention this thing to me that blew my mind. Sourdough starters all sort of come from this one area in San Francisco. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, So sourdough involves the um, making bread with uh, the yeast that you would normally make it with, but it also has uh, these bacteria called lactic acid bacteria, Um, and they are what produce the sour flavor. And so uh, when these bacteria were first characterized, they were characterized in the sourdoughs of San Francisco, which is, uh, known for its sourdough bread. Is it? I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, I'm from San Francisco, so okay. <laughs> maybe it's not widely known, but um, we have amazing sourdough bread in, okay. in San Francisco. And it's a tradition, you know, has been a tradition for over 100 years. So when they characterized the bacteria, um, they identified these, these lactic acid bacteria that were involved in making the sourness, and they named it Lactobacillus san after San Francisco. There we go. And so I think initially uh, people thought, okay, well, this idea of microbial terroir, lactobacillus san franciscensis is only going to be found in San Francisco because, you know, you can only make that kind of sourdough bread. But then people started looking in Italy and other places where sourdough bread is traditionally made, um, and they found lactobacillus san franciscensis everywhere. So... Uh, it's interesting because these microbes might be very widespread um, in terms of what specific types they are, but they might still have unique properties based on where, where they come from.
0: Do we know how microbes travel from San Francisco to Spain, for instance? No.
1: <laughs> no idea? No. No. And so that's a, a sort of a interesting area of study in the field of microbiology right now is this idea of biogeography, of you know, where microbes live and how they might travel from place to place. That's fascinating. Yeah, This
0: is WFIU's
1: Profiles. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Annie Corrigan with
0: microbiologist Dr. Rachel Dutton from Harvard University. Let's talk about your research now. I read on The New York Times that uh, you began a five-year project to sequence, analyze, and map the DNA of organisms found on 160 different cheese rinds from around the world, So now if my timeline is correct, that article was from 2010, you should be coming toward the end of it, right? How's it going?
1: Yeah, it's going really well. (laughs) So we're three years in, and we're a little over three years in, and uh, we are working on our first paper describing the microbial diversity of these uh, 100-plus cheeses uh, from—we ended up getting cheeses from about 10 different countries um, and sequencing the organisms that were present across these cheeses.
0: Anything that's surprising or unique that you can sort of
1: scoop us? Yeah. <laughs> so one interesting thing is that um, some of these organisms, like, like I mentioned earlier, look like they're very closely related to things from skin. So that's interesting. Uh, the other thing, which is unexpected, is that uh, some of the microbes are closely related to organisms from the ocean um, which we didn't really expect to be a common thing, but they're actually on many, many different kinds of cheeses. And so they've really only been described in think, places like the Arctic Ocean. Uh, but we're finding them on cheese. And so the question is, what What are they doing there? Uh, we don't know how they get there, what they're doing. Are they a big factor in flavor? If you sort of smell a cheese, can you get some of the sort of oceany uh, kind of aromas. It, so it's, that's an unexpected sort of uh, finding. And we found I think, two species that have never been described on cheese before in some of our cheeses. So we're starting to look at those and what they might be contributing to the cheese. It's
0: okay. So we'll keep an eye out in a, another year and a half for the end of this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. The awareness about microbes in general and how they affect our health, specifically our gut microbes, the little bugs that live in our bodies. People are becoming more and more aware that uh, these things are very important throughout our entire lives for health, obesity, that sort of stuff. It's sometimes a tough idea to wrap our minds around. You know, the uninitiated aren't really going to understand this concept. Can you help us understand it in layman terms?
1: What we're learning is that there are very complex communities of microbes that live everywhere, including in the human body and in the human gut. And uh, researchers now are finding that these microbes play big roles in your the amount of energy you get from foods, how much weight you might uh, put on in response to eating different foods, uh, various impacts on your immune system. And so it's just an incredible time in, in microbiology right now where we're not only able to discover these microbes, uh, which we had really not a good concept of before, um, but now we're actually starting to understand what they might be doing and the impacts that they're playing in human uh, health seem to be huge.
0: If you're eating cheese, well, the microbes on cheese affect the microbes in my body
1: Yeah, so we just uh, published a study in collaboration with a lab that studies the gut microbiome. And we had uh, 10 subjects, study subjects, eat cheese um, as well as other fermented foods um, on one of the diets. And we watched what happened to the microbes. And we saw that some of the microbes from cheese can actually survive the gut. Um, so we don't know at this point if they're doing anything to the community in the gut, but we know that they're there. Um, they're active. They're alive. So I think it's you know completely open question. And it's not that different than um, thinking about probiotics from yogurt, um, other fermented foods that, that people have started to work on.
0: So I can see research like that potentially really impacting how people think about their food, if it's going to stay in their gut and could affect their health in pretty significant ways.
1: Yeah, I mean, any fermented food is alive. Um, And what those organisms do when you eat them is, I think, a pretty open question. So much information. You can find out about Rachel Dutton's
0: research. Just search the Harvard website. It's also on the Dutton Lab You can search Google and find out a lot about that there. It's Profiles here on WFIU. Annie Corrigan with you. Thanks for tuning in. Dr. Rachel Dutton of Harvard University. She studies the microbial communities on cheese, and she's our guest today. So far, we've gotten away from really enjoying cheese and talking about the the pleasure of food. So when you're doing all this amazing research, are you tasting any of this stuff by chance? Absolutely.
1: (laughs) Uh, Part of what... Drew me into uh, studying cheese microbiology is just a passion for food, um, and so we work with a lot of cheesemakers. Uh, so we'll go visit farms and um, sample cheeses, and and I worked for two months with a cheesemaker making cheese before I started my lab to get ha- direct experience with uh, the thing I was going to be studying. And so I've had a lot of wonderful opportunities to travel and experience um, cheeses. And mostly we work with small producers. So it's so many interesting stories and people who are really passionate about what they're doing and producing amazing cheeses. Um, And even here within the U.S., there is a rapidly growing artisan cheese movement. So lots of really amazing cheeses are being made in the United States um, which is really exciting. Yeah, we have to brag about Judy Shad down on the Ohio yeah. River, Capriol Farms. Capriol is amazing. Um, I've had some of her cheese over the past few days here in Indiana, and um, she makes some of the best cheese in the U.S. So,
0: Yeah, we're very lucky. Describe just the basic cheese-making process, if you can.
1: Yeah, so it's really—maybe I'm biased because I'm a microbiologist, but a lot of it has to do with microbes. So— you start with milk, uh, which can usually come from a cow or a goat or a sheep. And then, what you do is similar to yogurt, you add microbes so that the milk is fermented. Um, so, the cheesemaker will warm up the milk so it's a nice warm environment for the microbes to grow. Those microbes will start to ferment the sugar in the milk, uh, produce acid, which starts to coagulate the milk. Um, usually, rennet, an enzyme, um, is added to help that process. And then you end up with curds, which is the solids separating from the whey. So you have your curds and whey. Um, And the curds are fresh cheese. So that's uh, something like a fresh chevre that you would have, something very simple, um, very milky kind of tart taste. The process that we study is what happens next, which is when you age cheese. So cheeses can be aged for weeks or months or years, depending on what kind of cheese you make. And during that process, a whole other set of microbes colonize the surface of the cheese. So that's what we, what's called the rind. So if you think about on the surface of a piece of brie, for example, you have this white fluffy surface. That's actually a microbial community really? that grows on the surface. And those, so those microbes colonize the surface. They form this what's called a biofilm, so this sort of surface community on the cheese, and they're actually imparting a lot of the flavor during the aging process. So you start out with a fresh cheese, and then you end up with these hundreds of varieties of cheese. And a lot of that has to do with the microbes that are growing on the surface. So what types of microbes, how much you have, that can all impact the flavor of the final cheese.
0: Let's back up in this process. Yeah. A cheese starts with milk. Yes. Are you noticing a difference in the microbial makeup of cheese that comes from milk from animals that have been fed antibiotics, from animals that have been
1: raised organically. With cheese making, you're not, uh, you can't make cheese from milk that has antibiotics in it because it'll kill the bacteria that you're trying to uh, grow in order to make the cheese. So, when cheesemakers, um, if they have to to treat a sick cow with antibiotics, they take that cow out of the the pool of milk that they would use. In terms of what they're eating, it can have a really big impact on what the cheese tastes like. So um, cows that are uh, eating grass, the flavors and the vitamins, the nutrients from the grass actually come through to the milk. And so you'll have cheeses that have a little bit more of a yellow orange color to them. And those are from beta carotenes, uh, pigments in the grass that actually come through the milk. So traditionally, yellow cheeses were cheeses that were made in the summer when the animals were out on pasture. And cheeses made in the winter were lighter color. Cheese makers uh, for the past uh, over 100 years ago started adding dyes, you know, like annatto natural food dyes, to make the cheeses more yellow so it would look more like that uh, really uh, high-quality grass-fed uh, milk. And now we come back to this concept of terroir yes. again. <laughs>
0: So raw cheese, can we talk about that as well? Do you notice a difference there?
1: So um, there hasn't been that much research on the differences in terms of the, uh, you know, very controlled experiments of raw versus pasteurized cheese. So normally with milk, uh, when it comes directly out of the animal in its raw form, it has a number of microbes that are already present in the milk. Um, And so we can look and see, you know, what the microbial population is before pasteurization and after pasteurization. pasteurization, Pasteurization gets rid of a lot of those microbes. And so the idea is that if you have more microbial diversity in your milk, because the microbes are what are impacting the flavor to a great extent, maybe you have more complex flavors in the cheese that are made from raw milk. And I think that that can be true, um, but I don't think that's to say that you can't make delicious cheese with pasteurized milk, because um, there are. And we're not seeing a huge difference in the rind, but I think inside the cheese there can be quite a bit of a difference in terms of which microbes are present in the cheese.
0: I don't know if you're in the business of taking a stand on political issues, but this idea of raw milk, raw anything dairy, is it's a hot button in a lot of states across the country. Yeah. Do you have a
1: position? I... So the the raw milk, uh, the use of raw milk and cheese is is being debated right now at the federal level. Um, so the FDA is reevaluating uh, the use of raw milk and cheese making. Currently, there's a 60-day aging criteria. So if you make cheese with raw milk, it has to be aged for at least 60 days. Otherwise, you're not able to sell it. So that limits what kinds of cheeses you can make with raw milk. Um, but the science, uh, based on research from labs like Kathy Donnelly at the University of Vermont, suggests that that 60-day limit, which was intended for um, pathogens that were present decades ago, is not doesn't really work for things like Listeria and E. coli, which we're currently facing in cheesemaking. Um, so it's sort of where people are doing research right now and trying to figure out what actually would be – the best way to be able to use raw milk in cheese making, which I think is generally a good thing, uh, but in the safest way possible. Um, so I guess my feeling is that I think that we should be able to make raw milk cheeses, but you know, we might need to adjust some of the practices in order to do that in the safest way possible.
0: Again, stay tuned. We'll see yeah. what happens
1: with that. <laughs> It's, that's the theme
0: that I'm getting today is that this field of microbiology and just our knowledge about microbes in general is just ever-changing.
1: Absolutely. Which is it's a really exciting time to, to be a microbiologist right now.
0: Yeah. If you want to learn more about all of this and listen to my complete conversation with Rachel Dutton, you can access it at eartheats.org. Okay, let's have a little fun. You're on a desert island. <laughs> you can only have one cheese. What cheese
1: are you taking with you? Well, I probably would take Cabot Clothbound with me. I don't know if you've ever had this cheese, but um, so Cabot Creamery, which is a big cheddar producer in Vermont, uh, teamed up with a small uh, cheesemaker and aging facility in Vermont, which we do a lot of work with Jasper Hill Farm and Cellars, um, which is based in Greensboro, Vermont. So they wanted to make a traditional English-style cloth-bound cheddar instead of the normal plastic-wrapped uh, cubes that they would sell in the supermarket. Um, and so they're making this cheddar and aging it in a very traditional way for about a year in a cave. Um, and the flavors you end up getting in that cheese are absolutely incredible. So mm. very caramelly, um so you get these little crystal, crunchy crystals. It's melts beautifully. It's just a wonderful, delicious cheese. Um, and it's not that expensive either. So, <laughs> hey, Cheese lovers. Cabot, yeah. Cabot
0: cloth-bound cheddar? Cabot
1: cloth-bound cheddar, yeah. Okay, check that out. It's a great everyday cheese. Mm.
0: Yeah. All right. I think I remember you saying that your interest in food came before your interest in
1: science. Is that right? Well, I was a scientist before I started really getting interested in food, but... My growing interest in food made me shift from what I was doing before, which is bacterial genetics, uh, into food microbiology.
0: What Do you remember the point where you thought, you know, I could combine these two interests?
1: Yeah, it was, it was sort of a process. But part of what it was is I was getting more and more interested in food and food science. And uh, I had a copy of Harold McGee's book on food and cooking. And I was reading the section on cheese, and he talks a little bit about the microbiology of cheese. And I realized that, you know, it's probably just scratching the surface here. There's probably a lot more going on in cheese microbiology than what we know already. Because the tools we have in microbiology have become so much more sophisticated just over the past 10 years. So the the things that we can learn now are so much more detailed and a lot of the research on the microbiology of cheese had been done decades ago. So it sort of made uh, made me think that I could potentially contribute a lot to this area and of food.
0: Yeah, you clearly have, clearly, and across many diff- different disciplines with chefs and everything. Uh, one last question from me. It's been so much fun having you on Profiles. Uh, we're at Indiana University. We're on campus, so it's always good to bring it back to students. A biology student who sees your career and thinks, that's for me. Give advice to a scientist who wants to go into food research.
1: Yeah, so I've had an opportunity to meet with a bunch of students so far, I had breakfast with about 20 undergrads. I think just following, you know, what your passions are in, in science is really important. So I think being a food microbiologist is is not necessarily the most common thing, <laughs> but I think, you know, it has a lot of opportunities for impacting other areas of science as well. So I think that, you know, just seeking out research opportunities uh, in, in areas that relate to it is, is a good way to get started. Just go for it. Yeah, just go for it.
0: <laughs> Anything that we missed that you want to add about your research or cheese in general?
1: Well, I think beyond sort of learning just about cheese, a lot of what we're trying to do is develop cheese as as an ecosystem that we can actually grow and manipulate in the lab, so that we can understand how microbial communities in general work. So, you know, when we talk about the gut microbiome, it's very um, complex and difficult to study. So, we might be able to use simple. Uh, model systems to understand how microbes interact with each other, how communities form, how we might be able to uh, change the way that communities form um, by studying a simple system like cheese. So that's, that's really one of the big goals of the research in, in my lab. So much information
0: today. This has been wonderful. For listeners out there who want to learn more about microbes, how they interact with cheeses and everything that Rachel Dutton does, you can find a series of links to her work on our website, which is eartheats.org. Dr. Rachel Dutton is a Bauer Fellow at Harvard University where she works with cheese and its microbes. It's been so great having you here. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. My pleasure. This has been Profiles on WFIU. I'm Annie Corrigan. Thanks for listening.
1: The program you just heard was recorded in April of 2014. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.
0: That was microbiologist Rachel Dutton, who studies cheese microbes and gives classes to the public on the science of fermented foods. Coming up in the second half of our program... An archived edition with farmer and food advocate Marsha Veldman. She's the coordinator of the Bloomington Community Farmers Market, and she was named Woman of the Year for 2013. I'm Annie Corrigan. This is Profiles. Today I'm excited to welcome Marsha Veldman into the studios. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Annie. It's a pleasure being here. Marsha Veldman is an advocate for food justice and security, sustainability, and community development in Bloomington, Indiana, She's worked for the city of Bloomington during the last 16, almost 17 years, as the point person and coordinator of the Bloomington Community Farmers Market. She's also the founder of Green Drinks Bloomington. She co chairs the Green Sanctuary Task Force at the Unitarian Universalist Church. And she's worked with the Hoosier Hills Food Bank, Mother Hubbard's Cupboard, and Hilltop Education Foundation. She is a very busy woman, I think should be the last line on your biography there. Yeah, that's true. But it's all good stuff. How do you find the time, first of all?
2: You know, I really do try to have a balance in my life. I really think it's important to uh, take time to, you know, nurture your spirit, spend time with friends, watch movies, things like that. But I'll have to say right now it's feeling like I'm not getting quite as much time in the woods as I would like and a little more time behind the laptop. But
0: One thing we didn't mention in your bio is that you, you're also a grower. You have Metalark Farm. So tell me what's in the ground right now.
2: So my, my selling season for Meadowlark Farm is generally about mid-July through March. So it's a little bit unusual compared to, I guess, most growers. So I more focus on later season crops and storage crops. But I have my uh, spring kitchen garden in and the peas and fava beans and lettuce and arugula are just all looking great. You know, I always have this sense of like, oh, well, if spring's like this, then summer will be like that. But it really doesn't seem to be true so it's hard to say what it's going to be like the weather seems more variable than ever and I you know my perspective is really short but I hear that from people who've been growing for 80 years too it amazes me so many people choose to to be farmers because you know not only are you dealing with the the vagaries of weather which is just like all right let's see then it's like how you're going to be able to sell everything, and just the amount of hard work that's involved. So I'm always really grateful that there are people out there who who want to do it.
0: We're going to talk a little bit more about the difficulties that small local farmers have to deal with, Mm -hmm. getting their food into the ground and then into consumers' hands. So we'll get to that a little later in the show. So as we mentioned earlier, you've served as the coordinator for the Bloomington Community Farmers Market. This is now your 17th year doing that. Give us the specs of the market. How many vendors do you have on a typical Saturday? How many people come to the market?
2: As far as numbers of vendors, I guess the place to start is to say we have three different types of vendors, um, and they kind of each participate in a special, unique way and have different guidelines for participation and As most people know, the vast majority are the farm vendors. And this year, we signed about 140 farm vendor contracts. So it's a big roster of farmers who um, have the opportunity to sell at market this year. Not everybody comes every week. Um, On a typical Saturday, we averaged over 90 farm vendor stalls rented, So then in addition to the farm vendors, there's the prepared food vendors that are primarily on the the Beeline Market Plaza. And this year, there are 10 spaces, but we have 11 vendors. Um, How many people do you serve on a typical Saturday? On a typical Saturday, it's... I think we're averaging now over 6,000 people. Yeah. And we actually, we last year, we started switching the way we calculate the numbers of people. We, for many years, have done where we walk a certain pattern around the market, same pattern every time, and count every hour on the half hour. And we have worked on the assumption that most people stay for a half hour Because the market's grown so much and we've added all the prepared food vendors, we've decided it was time to kind of check in with customers and see how long are they really staying. So now we calculate that it's a 45-minute visit. So our numbers used to sound higher, but I think now they're more accurate.
0: (laughs) 6,000 people, 90 vendors on a typical Saturday. This seems like a really substantial farmer's market. We're very proud of it here in the Bloomington community. I don't know if you can speak to national trends, but where do we stand compared to other markets around the country?
2: We are really fortunate. I think this market is really one of the outstanding markets around the country, not not just in size, but also in, in the focus on the farmer, where we really... Um, put a lot of emphasis on making this a market that is accessible to farmers. We still have not turned any farmers away for, you know, as long as they're growing what they have in Indiana, they're welcome to sell at this market, which is kind of unique for a market the size that we are. And we really do place a high value, the farmers and the customers, on it really being food that's raised by the farmer so those things um, you know there are other markets around the country that um, have that value as well but I think that focus and the size of it and just the beauty of the location and the fact that we have the space to do many events associated with the market like I know you've been a salsa contest judge in the past so it really is a pretty outstanding market and I think I say that, but, you know, what I really, really value is how it serves this community. It's neat that it receives national recognition, but what's really important is how it meets the needs of the farmers and customers in this community.
0: I want to talk about how it's changed since you've been involved. Before we get to that, I asked for questions that people wanted to ask you, and... Uh, Someone who goes to the market regularly wants to know if there's any check or balance that you guys do on the vendors to make sure that they are indeed growing their food on their farm in Indiana. You're nodding your head, so there must be.
2: There is. Yeah, we we start by having an application that farmers fill out, ask some in-depth information about where they're growing, what they're growing, what processor, if they're using meat, they use information that's that's just generally good for us to know but if there's a question as to whether or not they are producing what they're selling at the farmers market it provides us with a lot of background information to start with we do go out on farm inspections we probably average a couple a year and sometimes the impetus for that is you know, hearing from another farmer that they kind of question whether or not someone is raising what they sell. Once in a while, it's a customer. Sometimes it's coming from us, you know, we'll see something unusual. When we do go out on farm inspections, they are really in-depth. We really, you know, want want for customers and other farmers to feel assured that everyone's playing by the same rule book and that when we say you are buying from the farmer, it's a true statement.
0: Someone else wanted to know about your SNAP program at the market where you accept food stamps. This is a really exciting program. Uh, Please tell us about that. We're really excited,
2: especially about the developments that are taking place this year, the market in 2007 started accepting food stamp benefits, and I think we were the, well, I know we were the first one in Indiana, and it, it took a bit of work to, to sort through it because at that point in time, the USDA, is who you submit your application through, really wasn't focused on farmer's markets very much, so the questions were really off base for what we were doing, and but it took a little sorting out, but... You know, something that um, as a department and with the Farmers' Market Advisory Council, we really valued the idea of increasing that access to low-income people. So so we've been doing that since 2007. And this past winter, we received a grant for $20,000 from a small foundation and um, have been able to double food stamp benefits. So... A uh, person who receives food stamp benefits can come to market and they use their electronic benefits transfer card, the little thing that looks like a credit card or debit card, and um, can transfer however much money they want to out of their food stamp allotment to receive market bucks, which are the vouchers then they can shop with the farmer's. And this year, up to $18 of that transfer will be doubled. So someone who transfers 18 gets $36 in market bucks. And it's being done in other places around the country. And what they see is the use increases a lot. And that certainly is what we've seen in our first six weeks I, both the numbers of people coming and the total dollar amount has just, I don't know the actual numbers yet, but it's something like tripled. But then what also has been seen is that once that incentive is removed, that food stamp use continues at a higher rate. And so, you know, once people make it a part of their lifestyle and their food budget, that they've value it and will continue once the incentive isn't there. Yes.
0: Surely we didn't start off here 17 years ago. <laughs> Go back to your first couple years with the market. What was that like?
2: Well, when I started with the market, it was 1997, and the market was over by the library in the Monroe County History Center and what now looks like a tiny little parking lot to me. And that was the last year at that site. And I will say, I was really intimidated by the process of moving the market to Showers Come. And while I was really excited, I also, you know, was just feeling really responsible like, oh my gosh, this is just a huge space. And what if it doesn't work out well? <laughs> but it really was a remarkable opportunity um, to be able to to grow the market. And it has grown a lot. You know, what changes? Yeah, the events at market are a big change. Um, you know, the, the previous space certainly did not allow for for that type of thing. And um, and I think those have become real signatures of the market and kind of turn it into, into a festival, a place where people really, you know, spend some time, and a lot of them are learning a lot about growing food, about
0: preparing food, about what's going on in
2: the community.
0: As someone who's on the inside, tell us where we can improve. Where are the holes in what we're doing right now?
2: Well, right now, Indiana is importing 90% of the food us Hoosiers eat. So there's one darn big hole. I would guess this is from a report that the Indiana State Department of Health commissioned two years ago. I would guess Bloomington fares a little better, but there's a lot, a lot of opportunity, both for customers and for farmers, to really keep some of that money in our local economies that 90% of the food is about $14.5 billion that's leaving the state. Um, And Indiana's a great growing state. I mean, yeah, here we are, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in in the heartland and most of our food's coming from elsewhere. So yeah, there's incredible opportunity. I think for people who are inclined to making food from scratch, you know, it's the farmer's market's there. You can buy pretty much what you need year-round if you're, you know, open to really focusing on what's available and in season. And that's, I think, paradigm shift for some people who, you know, start with a recipe and say, okay, you know, well, maybe I can find this at the market as opposed to now, like looking at the market and going, okay, what can I make with what's available? So I think making that that shift will make a big difference and then, really, um, farm communities have have really broken down. Where I live right now, when I moved there fifteen years ago, my neighbors were almost all family, and when it was time to hay, you know, they all hayed till the haying was done. You know, it was definitely this cooperative effort, and that's the traditional way. and you know, and there were close-by facilities to bring your grains to, and there were places that were really open to buying local food more so than they are now. So rebuilding that infrastructure and that culture in farm communities is really important.
0: You can speak to this next question from two angles, one as a grower, one as the coordinator of the farmer's market. Talk about the difficulties for small local farmers as they're trying to get their food to local tables?
2: There's quite a few challenges in that. You know, one, we talked a little bit about just the unpredictability of weather, and you just never know from season to season how a particular crop is going to fare, you know. So one year, say you plant an acre of sweet potatoes, and you have, like, way more than you can. You know, can use and um, or sell, and uh, and then the next year you plant that same amount, and you're running out in October. So, yeah, it's it's very unpredictable um, crops. And then when you start talking about perishable items, that gets even more tricky because. You know with something like sweet potatoes well you can sell them the next week and you know come up with other game plans when you're talking about a tomato you've got a short window to get it to where it needs to be and inevitably you're gonna have times where the plants are at their most productive and all of a sudden you're kind of like, woo I've got a whole bunch of green beans. (laughs) So there's that aspect. And then we did also talk a little bit about customer expectations. Well, I think this area has changed remarkably, at least here in Bloomington in the last few years, where um, customers aren't always looking for perfection in produce. I mean, you know, the reality is not everything you harvest is going to be perfectly unblemished, you know. Yeah, customer expectations in that regard are changing somewhat. But also in their looking at it from a different perspective and, you know, um, wanting to focus more on seasonality and not, you know, looking for... Sweet corn in May, um, yeah. That they that they kind of get that. Mm-hmm. Another, I guess, challenge is um, for the growers who are wholesaling is it can be pretty unpredictable. You know, you can have an account with a restaurant. Unfortunately, restaurants do come and go, or you know, their business fluctuates, so that can be challenging. Um, I've heard of people who've you know, had pretty steady business with a specific grocery store and a manager changes and all of a sudden everything's different. Regulations can be challenging and, you know, I'm, I'm not anti-regulation by any <laughs> means because I think it's important for food safety that we do have good sound regulations, but all too often they aren't scale appropriate, so they are more... Focused on these big, huge produce farms and not on small-scale farms like the ones that are selling at the farmers market. The uh, you know, subsidies t- for mm-hmm. agribusiness, and you know, and it's not just commodity crops. I mean, when oil is subsidized the way it is, that means that you know, petrochemicals are subsidized. And um, it means transportation is subsidized. All of these are um, for a small local farmer who is not as dependent on that. makes it challenging. Labor practices, you know, when we have people working in our fields for very, very little, it's hard to compete with that. So, yeah, there are are quite a few challenges that um, small farmers face. And it's amazing they... Keep going. Keep going. You know, for me, eating is really a pretty intimate act. I mean, I mean, really you are taking in sun, soil, water. Very much immersing yourself in your food. It's becoming a part of you. And I love the connectedness of knowing where my food came from. It it just, yeah, it makes a meal feel more special when I'm like, oh, yeah, and these tomatoes came from such and such. And, you know, knowing the people who raised it, it makes it, um, makes it feel special to have a meal.
0: The first line in your bio says you're an advocate for food justice. Mm-hmm. What is food justice? Food justice,
2: for me, kind of, I guess, encompasses food from the time it's being grown in the fields to when it's on our plates. And it involves creating a healthful place for people who are growing the food, You know, so that the people who are raising the food we eat aren't exposed to chemicals that um, are harmful to them, that they re- receive a fair wage for the labor that they do. And continues on to that healthy food is accessible to everyone, that that's a right to healthy food. And it's really unfortunate that where we are right now in food policy in the United States is that corn and soybeans, these big commodity crops, are so heavily subsidized that it makes things that are made with corn syrup, for example, very inexpensive. But they're very bad for you. So it's like, you know, you can buy a two liter soda, I don't know, I haven't done it in a while. I'm guessing ninety nine cents <laughs> probably. is probably the going right. You know, ninety nine cents for a two liter soda bottle, highly processed, has nothing in it for you. And yet, you know, a bag of apples costs several dollars. That that's just wrong. It should be. Uh, yeah, we as a country should set policy that works to get healthy food to people. That is a, a food. I think uh, Michael Pollan said it should be the food bill, not the farm bill.
0: <laughs> Congress just said that it it is going to work on the farm bill to get us a new farm bill soon. From your perspective. As a grower, as an organizer of a local farmer's market, as an advocate for food justice, what would you like, ideal scenario, what would you like the 2013 Farm Bill to look like?
2: Yeah, the the Farm Bill, it is, you know, so much more than a Farm Bill because it encompasses, like, food stamps, the food stamp program. It includes WIC, includes so much, but... I would certainly love to see more incentives for sustainable agriculture. I think we you know, we need to see an end and I don't mean in a dramatic sort of way, but maybe a scaling down of the money that goes into the commodity crops. I think ethanol is unfortunately pretty much a sham. <laughs> um, You know, it takes the amount of energy it takes to raise the crops for ethanol is pretty darn close to the value that we get out in energy. And so it's just so incredibly wasteful and has been so disruptive to food prices. And in the United States... People feel it. But around the world, you know, they're really feeling it. in other places where people are, you know, where bread is a staple and all of a sudden, you know, the price of wheat is soaring because, you know, people are switching from growing wheat to growing corn because of ethanol. So
0: <laughs> it's, a, it's a big question. Yeah. We seem to be successful in our little corner of the world here. Local farmers getting local food to local customers. If the farm bill could increase one part of a farmer's life, what could you use money from the government for as a grower? What would be the most beneficial?
2: You know, as a grower, I guess I would rather see that increasing access for low-income people – You know, it would be fabulous if the farm bill included money for doubling SNAP benefits across the country at farmer's markets. It's such a win-win scenario because that money does go to the farmer. And it means that the person, you know, the food stamp recipient is buying healthy, nutrient-dense local food. So it's, you know, that would be fabulous. Right now, there's only a handful of markets around the country that are able to to do this doubling of benefits, you know, the ones that have been fortunate to secure funding, but it's hard to come by. So, yeah, I guess I would rather see that end of the equation worked on. And the, you know, as the amount of focus on the commodity crops decreased and therefore you know, the the cost of highly processed food would probably rise, making more healthy food more competitive for,
0: for consumers. That's an interesting way to think about that. Yeah. For people looking at the Bloomington Farmer's Market as sort of the goal that they want to achieve in their community, give some tips, tricks, advice. You know, I think...
2: It kind of depends where your starting point is. We we get a lot of inquiries from people who are interested in um, starting farmers markets in their communities or trying to build on the markets they have. And while I think there's a lot of good things that can be learned from our community market, one, I think it does need to be kind of specific to the, the needs of a community. And I think this market didn't start this way. And that's important to remember. It started with 23 vendors in 3rd Street Park, the park right behind the police station there. So that's where it started, and it's taken time to grow. And I think that's something that um, people starting in a market need to understand. I think really involving the community in the process of getting it going. Just have a lot of different clever ways to bring the community to the market and then once they're there, I'm sure they are buying <laughs> produce at the market. And, um, and that market also emphasizes a lot the crafts and the prepared foods. Um, because we can, we like to really emphasize the farm vendor aspect of it. But that's not necessarily the best place for everybody to start. Sometimes you need to grow it. Patience. Patience. <laughs> yes. Patience. Farming and farmer's markets are both about Patience.
0: <laughs> Well, shame on me. This entire hour, I've forgotten to congratulate you because you were awarded Woman of the Year for 2013 by the City of Bloomington. Congratulations.
2: Thank you. What
0: Thank did that mean, mean to get that award?
2: When Toby Strout called me and told me that I was selected, I was really surprised, shocked. It it was not on my radar. And I think my first thing was, really? then, you know, then I was really. it really is an honor. And I, you know, so realized that it's about the work that I'm doing. And the work that I'm doing is not just me doing. I get to work with so many incredible people and organizations. And so I just think it made me love Bloomington all the more because it's a community that values sustainability and farming and and people who are kind of working in the trenches. And I love that about Bloomington, so. But yeah, it was really an honor.
0: Yeah, you are definitely working in the trenches in a lot of different (laughs) ways. Marsha Veldman, it's been such a pleasure. Marsha Veldman is an advocate for food justice and security, sustainability, and community development. You probably know her from her work with the Bloomington Community Farmers Market. Perhaps you've seen her at the Hoosier Hills Food Bank, Mother Hubbard's Cupboard, or as part of the Green Sanctuary Task Force at the Unitarian Universalist Church. She also grows food in her copious amounts of free time at Meadowlark Farm. And thank you so much for coming in today. This conversation has been awesome. Thanks, Annie. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Profiles here on WFIU Bloomington. I'm Annie Corrigan.